Yeah, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for another Labor History Talks. Um, for your information, in case you haven't been here, uh, these meetings are recorded and uh, we clean up the audio so that we can post them on, um, on SoundCloud. So if you have any issue with that, with that uh, send me a message if you'd potentially like your contributions cut out um, because we do have discussions at the end. Um, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, today's topic uh, is going to be the Black Freedom Struggle and the Labor Movement Part 3, uh, the Black Power Movement. Speaking are going to be Nicole, a frequent contributor to Labor History Talks, and Avery, our lead writer. And um, whenever you two are ready to, to, to start, go ahead. Nicole, I think I gave you um, rights to, to share the screen. Okay, yeah, it looks like I do have that. Um, well, I think Avery's going to go first, so let him start us off. Yes, I will start. So this talk covering labor and the Black Power era is part three of our series, like Victor said, the Black Freedom Struggle and the Labor Movement. Before Nicole talks about events in the 1960s and 70s, we will review what was learned in the first two sessions and fill in some gaps. Before the Civil War, Black workers were excluded from every US labor organization except for the New York-based federation led by followers of Karl Marx, which insisted that its members be abolitionists. But some of the early racist craft-based unions not only excluded black workers, but drove them out of their trades. Free black workers in the North had in fact dominated some skilled trades in the early 1800s before they were driven out. Yet before the Civil War, the labor movement was a very small part of the urban population, which itself was a small minority of a mostly rural country. So labor before the Civil War had very little power or influence. The first nationwide withdrawal of labor, the first nationwide strike in US history came when some 400,000 black workers escaped slave plantations during the Civil War. Historian W.E.B. Du Bois called this the first general strike. And that general strike weakened the Southern war machine. It freed up slaves to become soldiers in the Union Army. It forced Lincoln to declare emancipation. And it tipped the scales in a war the North actually barely managed to win. After the war, labor flourished. The National Labor Union was formed, which for the first time admitted black workers alongside white workers. And yet there was also a separate colored National Labor Union formed at the same time. Those two groups were not antagonistic, they were allied. Freed black laundresses organized the first labor action by black women in Mississippi in 1866. But the defeat of reconstruction by armed white supremacists who overthrew elected Southern state governments, several of which had large numbers of black representatives, also doomed both of the two new national union federations. Then with the rise of modern corporations and large factories, which replaced the small craft working shops where the craft unions were based, a new federation 
called the Knights of Labor, sought to organize much larger unions than the old ones. Then they did this in the 1880s. During their rapid growth to 700,000 members by 1886, they admitted black members and had integrated locals even in Southern states. But the Knights fell apart soon after leading the May 1st general strike for the eight hour day with local governments then cracking down hard and cheering Chicago's execution of the strike hero, Albert Parsons. Parsons' wife, Lucy Gonzalez Parsons, an Afro-Mexican woman, lived on as one of the country's most famous labor revolutionaries well into the 20th century. Samuel Gompers' American Federation of Labor, founded in 1886, though it was a step backward in being mostly based on the exclusive craft rather than industrial unions. In spite of that, early on, the American Federation of Labor opposed discrimination against Black, Mexican, Native, and Eastern European workers. The one unfortunate exception was that they did not oppose discrimination against Chinese immigrants. But Gompers actually expelled one of the AFL's largest unions, the International Association of Machinists, because they refused to remove their constitution's bar on black membership. But then with the defeat of the multiracial farmer worker populist party in the 1890s, the Southern ruling class invented the Jim Crow system that kept the races even more rigidly separated. And so with the country taking yet another white supremacist step backwards, Samuel Gompers' AFL gradually gave in to the racism they previously opposed. So in 1895, they allowed the machinists to re-enter the AFL under a rotten compromise. They removed the international's constitutional bar on black membership, but they really still kept blacks out by barring them under the initiation rules of each local. Then up to the 1930s, AFL unions largely became increasingly racist. In 1905, the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the IWW or Wobblies, formed to reject narrow craft unionism and union racism. The IWW taught all workers that racism hurt them all. Its heroic Brotherhood of Timber Workers organized illegal black and white integrated locals in Alabama and Arkansas in the Jim Crow South. The Wobblies ultimately declined under vigilante attacks, frame-up trials, and deportations of Eastern European immigrant radicals but they still managed to set an example that inspired and instructed the future organizers of labor movement advance. In the great strike wave of the 1930s, the US's working class's biggest advance yet to this very day, the AFL expelled the Committee for Industrial Organization. And that was a group of unions led by the United Mine Workers that advocated broadly inclusive industrial not craft unionism. Once they were expelled, they renamed themselves the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, as in AFL-CIO. 
And they sought to organize the country's biggest corporations, like General Motors, U.S. Steel, and General Electric. But the CIO's liberal leaders needed organizers. And expelled from the AFL and desperate to survive, they turned to the Socialist and Communist Party memberships. Communists especially brought in multiracial organizing strategies. And for them, this meant going beyond the IWW's doctrine, which was simply that workers must unite regardless of color against the boss. They argued that this was not enough and that in addition, all workers must be enlisted in the fight against racism specifically. So in unions like the CIO's Chicago um, locals of the United Packing House Workers and the National United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, the radical left insisted on creating black leaders, fighting for anti-discrimination and equal pay clauses in their contracts, and also building alliances with community struggles against police brutality, slum landlords, and high grocery prices in black neighborhoods. These anti-capitalists understood that the unique history of labor in the US had been that when capitalist power ruled unchallenged, normal times. Racism divided workers and kept them unorganized. But in the Civil War and Reconstruction, and then the 1886 eight-hour movement, and then in the 1890s populist movement, stormy mass struggle eras broke down the separation in the working class between the races, but which had then in turn been restored in new form each time as an essential part of beating back our insurgent power. And so these radicals understanding this wrote the next chapter in the story. Black workers gained their greatest power in industry in the brand new unions like the United Auto Workers as part of the working class as a whole gaining our greatest power so far. And black workers could never again be pushed out of the center of the labor movement. But the labor movement as a whole, and black workers in particular, could still be pushed back. After World War II, the CIO's drive to finally organize the South, called Operation Dixie, failed, more or less because they stopped hiring communists. And what that meant was that their Southern Union drive tried to ignore rather than confront Jim Crow especially since their Democratic Party Northern allies were in the very same Democratic Party that ruled the South at that time as a one-party segregationist state. So that meant it was impossible to uh, effectively unionize the South in, unless you confronted Jim Crow, which they would not do. Then the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 outlawed communist membership for union staff members and the McCarthyist persecution of the 50s drove rank and file socialists out of the unions that they had built or helped build. 11 unions that refused to go along with this purge were actually expelled from the CIO. And that included the electrical workers and the dock workers. Those 11 embattled unions became early donors and allies of the civil rights movement, including the healthcare union 1199, which decades later, joined SEIU, but the rest of the CIO 
allowed racism to creep back in. The biggest CIO unions, the auto and the steel workers, though they never tried to go back to outright exclusion of black members, they kept all but a token few black members out of leadership offices. And worse than that, they kept black members in the hardest and lowest paid positions in the plants. As for the AFL, which remerged with the CIO in 1955, that's when we get AFL-CIO, the AFL was embroiled in a decades-long struggle over its long-standing racist policies with United Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters founder A. Philip Randolph fighting a lonely and relentless battle from inside the, the AFL. This was the situation in labor at the dawn of the modern black freedom struggle. And that's where Nicole will take us forward. Okay, great. Um, so I will be talking about um, the story from the 60s and 70s on. Um, so I'm gonna talk for a little bit and then in the middle, I'm gonna have a couple of video clips to show. Um, so I'll be sharing my screen at that time. So, so continuing off of Avery's point, an aspect of the civil rights and black power era of the 1960s that's often left out of modern accounts, such as in the media is a crucial one, the role of the labor movement. Leaving this out of the history leaves it incomplete in favor of a watered down neoliberal version of a so-called meritocracy without the potential threat of a labor uprising. For example, the famous March on Washington, 1963, best known for Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, was actually called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and was organized by A. Philip Randolph, who Avery just mentioned, and Bayard Rustin, who fought for civil labor and gay rights. While the fight for equal rights for black people in areas such as schooling, housing, and employment was and continues to be important, the efforts to improve rights for workers, both by multiracial and black groups, should go hand in hand with that fight when discussing this history and offers us lessons for these movements today. The organization Labor Notes, which was actually founded in the wake of the labor movement of the 60s and 70s, puts the connection between the fights for civil rights and worker rights perfectly. Quote, black workers have never drawn a line between civil rights in the community and worker rights on the job. That has everything to do with the central role black labor has always played in the US economy, from the unpaid labor of slavery to the low wages paid to black workers by modern industrialists to boost profits. Just as a significant group of black radicals broke away from, the North, from Northern white liberals and the Democratic Party in particular in order to form their own independent groups such as the Black Panther Party, black workers were increasingly frustrated with the white leadership of labor organizations. In the context of many of the important historical radical moments happening during this time, such as protests against the war in Vietnam, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago resulting in the infamous Chicago Seven trial in 1968, and the Stonewall riots, among others, the labor movement, particularly for the black labor movement, had a rich eventful era in which to launch their own protests. The black power movement of the late 60s and early 70s expressed its protests within labor movements through various caucuses, dissatisfied with the more conservative white leadership of major labor organizations such as the AFL-CIO. This was the continuation of much of the great work done in the South in the fight for civil and voting rights with eventual support from the AFL-CIO organized by figures like King, Randolph, and others. The hope is for this momentum to continue into the 60s and not just in the South. In major Northern cities, industrial unions in auto and steel had a large number of black workers, 
who helped drive a wave of strikes in the mid 60s, thanks in large part to the Black Power Movement. Some of the other larger unions that were part of the AFL-CIO had large black memberships, much of whom began to organize caucuses. Examples include postal workers, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the Meat Cutters Packing House Workers, and the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The organizing of caucuses by black workers in these unions was an important bulwark against discrimination by union leadership and led to the amount of strikes of the time. Strikes by transit workers in Chicago, while not that successful at first, eventually led to the forming of the Black Labor Federation, which later launched a significant strike by General Electric plant workers that lasted for four months. Uh, sorry. Uh, besides the expected demands of better wages, benefits, and conditions, the strikers also specifically demanded an anti-discrimination clause in their contract, since the election of the local sheet metal workers union president depended on support from the Black Employees Committee the striking workers had real power and incentive to strike for their demands. One of the more major examples of these strike movements is the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, also known as DRUM, and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the LRBW. Featured in the 1970 documentary, Finally Got the News. They protested for better pay and working conditions in the auto plants of Detroit. This movement was significant as it was the catalyst for the strike wave of the 60s and 70s which was the last major strike wave in US history, peaking in what was likely the last largest black participation in a strike with the 1970 postal wildcat strike discussed previously in labor history talks. The film demonstrates how black workers understood and leveraged their power within the United Auto Workers, UAW, knowing that the city and country would fall apart without the auto workers and steel workers, et cetera. Like the AFL-CIO, the UAW outwardly supported the civil rights movement in the South in the early 60s, but had no interest in negotiating with their own black members and did everything possible to suppress their demands. The workers' understanding of their power is the key element that is not understood or acknowledged or used today due to a lack of education on this very history and crackdowns on those who did protest, but needs to be if a similar movement is to thrive today. For example, in the era of the pandemic, if workers at grocery stores or huge corporations like Amazon, who have often been called essential workers but not treated as such, organized a nationwide strike, it would grind the gears of the country's economy to a halt, thereby forcing attention to be paid to their demands for better wages and conditions. This was at least somewhat successful in the movement of teacher strikes in the last couple of years, but there would, there would need to be much more awareness of the great power workers have in our country's economy. The film also explains the importance of multiracial organizing. Throughout, throughout history, rich white elites have done their best to pit white and black workers against each other, so that they don't realize that they're all in the same boat and organized together against management. Both black and white workers interviewed realize that this is happening. So now I will show um, two clips. One will be about uh, two minutes long, and then I will fast forward to another, which will be about a minute long. So I'm going to share my screen. Uh, Can everyone see the screen? Yes. Okay, great. So this clip is going to be about two minutes. So forth and so on. Uh, there's a lot of confusion amongst white people in this country, amongst white workers in this country about who the enemy is. The same contradictions of overproduction, the same contradictions of increasing production are prevalent within the white working class. But because of the immense resources of propaganda, 
publicity, you know, radio, television, journals, uh, magazines, and so on and so forth, which can be drawn upon, white people tend to get a little bit confused about who the enemy is. You take a look at, uh, you know, white workers in Flint, for instance, in the automobile industry, who are pretty hard pressed because the Buick plant up there is whipping their ass. You know, and it's whipping their ass about twice as hard today as it was five years ago. But who do they think the enemy is? You know, the nigga on the street, you know, uh, crime in the streets, you know, was a problem. But black people, you know, moving into our neighborhood, causing uh, housing prices to decline and threatening to rape our wives and daughters, you know. And um, as a result, you get a cat like George Wallace who comes along. And George Wallace is not the first of the populist fascists in this country. And George Wallace talks about how the big, fat cats of Wall Street are messing up the country. It's a little man that's suffering because of, uh, you know, the big, rich financial bears of Wall Street in conjunction and in alliance with the niggas. And the white folk, the white workers tend to buy that shit up. They tend to eat it up. They tend to love it. That's not in uh, Birmingham, Alabama that I'm talking about. That's in Flint, Michigan. As a result of that kind of thing, you know, millions and millions of white workers in this country just don't understand what's going down and uh, end up becoming counter-revolutionary, even though the contradictions which they face every day would say that they should be the most staunch revolutionaries. Black people represent, you know, the most forward and progressive and militant movement inside the plan, you know, which are calling not for, you know, I mean, in reality, you know, they ain't calling for the destruction, you know, of, uh, you know, the white working class. The demands which are being presented, you know, are demands which are calling for an uplifting of the working class as a whole. And the actual fact of the matter is that the movement of black workers is a class movement that's calling for a total change in the relationship between workers and owners all together. And what it's saying is that certainly we don't want all the shitty and lowest paying jobs in the plant. Certainly we don't want to be, you know, most exploited people in the plant. We aren't calling for anybody to be exploited. We're calling for the elimination of exploitation of the plants. We're calling for the elimination of racism in the plants. We're calling for the elimination of any kind of conditions inside of the plant, you know, which are bad, you know, for the basic, you know, health and enjoyment, you know, of, of, of life. You know, we are not calling for the replacement of the black proletariat, you know, with workers, you know, who happen to be in a higher stage in the lab. We are not calling for a situation in which white oppressors will be replaced by black oppressors. We are calling for the ending of oppression altogether. You know, basically the reason that they're racist is because of the fact that they're afraid, you know, that the little bit of niche they got in society is going to be lost. But ain't nobody been trying to demonstrate to them that rather than being against the black movement and being enemies of the black movement, that they should be in favor of the black movement and supporters of the black movement because the things that the black movement is doing inside of industry are basically in their interests. The kinds of demands and the kinds of movements, you know, which black people are making inside of the plants are not inimical to the interests of the average white worker. My father works. Okay, and then one more clip. See what it is, the thing that we call the political economy of poverty. And what it says is that if you keep people poor enough, not only are you starving them, but you're stopping them from having some power. But as wages increase, the power of the workers to be able to resist increases. That is, 
they're able to save a little bit of money. If they're able to save a little bit of money, they're able to develop a strike fund. Not only to be able to develop a strike fund, if they got a little bit extra money, they might be able to buy some guns. They might be able to organize themselves a little bit better, you know, be able to afford to pay some dues, you know, through which they can have, you know, paid staff, you know, which can do all the things which are necessary to the creation of a revolutionary organization. The league's... So those are the clips. And that, that full video is available on YouTube if you're interested in watching the rest. Uh, okay. So workers in the film also understand that a continued dependence on capitalism is the antithesis of decency and justice to mankind. And is also directly related to the racial component of oppression in American society from slavery to the modern era. They also demonstrate how workers, particularly black workers, represent the vanguard of this struggle and how critical it is to relate to other sections of the community, such as students, as well as central issues of the quote unquote ghetto, like housing, unemployment, and police brutality, issues that remain critical today. And this organizing was not limited to men. At that time, 57% of black women worked versus 41% of white women and were relegated to low paying temp and service jobs. Black women would not be less militant for their rights, as they know more about labor than anyone else, having the highest unemployment rate and lowest wage skills, and last hired first fired. The film also shows how labor organizations need their own resources to be able to survive constant attacks. Yet, of course, that's just the problem. Due to the subsequent crackdown on unions after the strikes of the 60s and 70s, as well as the industrialization compounded by the effects of the pandemic, this remains very difficult to do today but there are some signs of hope. What can we take away from the legacy of Drum and the other Black-led caucuses, as well as the postal wildcat strike? As the first wave of rank and file rebellions that spread across several other unions in the 70s, they sparked our last wildcat heavy strike wave. They pioneered rank and file caucuses taking action against undemo undemocratic union leadership. Teamsters for a democratic union, miners for democracy and others were the powerful fruit inspired by them. All of this has been keyed to the new stirrings in labor today. Labor Notes is the main voice associated with rank and file unionism today. And its founders were international socialists who were part of Teamsters for a Democratic Union and other similar groupings. And the two leading examples of class struggle anti-racist unionism today, the Chicago Teachers Union and the United Teachers of Los Angeles, both moved to the left as a result of rank and file caucuses forming to lead independent member action and later becoming elected to take over leadership. These were all directly inspired by the same late 60s and 70s landmarks. The still large participation of black workers in both public and private unions, the energy of the Black Lives Matter and anti-racism movements, and the small victories of the gradual but not quick enough enacting a $15 an hour minimum wage in many cities and states across the country, along with the success of recent teacher strikes in cities like Chicago, show there is still a path, though it remains a difficult one. Overall, however, the goal remains to organize black workers as well as Latino, Asian, and white workers as a whole, as a class throughout the US and the world. And without a widespread proper knowledge of people, events, and context that came before in this effort, it will be nearly impossible to continue that work in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Avery. Okay, so usually at that we uh, enter a, a discussion. Uh, are there any questions uh, to guide the discussion that uh, Avery or Nicole might have?
I have a comment. If I'm yeah, go for it. We'll leave it open. Um, I just think that uh, you know, first of all, great job to Avery and to Nicole. Thank you. Um, I think that combined their presentations. I think I know because <laughs> we're living it. Um, you know the saying: "There's nothing new under the sun." Um, even way back then, during Jim Crow, um, different eras that we've been through as Americans, it's like the same cycle. We're going through this again. Exactly. Uh, it just it's a never-ending like hamster wheel. Like when will we learn that there's power in unity? And it's not because of our color and colors and uh, lifestyles or whatnot. I mean, those those are the dumb things that that hinder us. <laughs> From be, from being our potential powerful selves, you know, and we're letting people just mind screw us continually to our deaths, while they just you know live lavish lifestyles. Which I have nothing against that, but why can't we all, you know, like <laughs> we can't because we let the stupid stuff hold us back, like race and you know lifestyles or or gender, and I mean it's ridiculous. We live and we die this way. Um. And it, it, it's a travesty because um, we never live to our full potential as people, as Americans. Um, and we've seen this recently in January, which is horrible, embarrassing to me <laughs> to see our country at this point. Um, and there's so many working class Caucasians, Black people, Hispanics. We're all in the same boat. You know, if we would just really, really realize that we are the ones in the same boat, we are the ones fighting, like she said, we are the essential workers. We're the ones been dying and catching these different, catching COVID and catching what any God knows what else down to the, the eons because we're, we're cannon fodder. And wake up, you know, um, and, and the thing like color that's, that's something that you're going to live the way that you were born. You're going to die the way that you, you were born. There's nothing you can do about the color that you are. So once we get over that part, and we just can never seem to get over that hump of color. And I just have never understood that. You know, I never understood that. But um, great job. Like Thanks, Robin. Um, Armando, it looks like you have your hand up. Do you, do you have a comment to make? Sorry, can you guys hear me? Yes. Um, just, just a question. Um, it was a great. This was, that was a great presentation, both of you guys. Um, uh, uh, just a question. What, the clips of, of uh, what movie did you show? Uh, say, I didn't get your the name of the movie. Oh yeah, so I actually just put a link to it in the chat. It's called "Finally Got the News." Um, oh okay. It's on YouTube. Um, when you click on the link, it may. It may go automatically to the clip that I started, but you can just rewind it to the beginning. So yeah, it's it's free on okay. YouTube. It's about an hour long. Um, okay. It's a little it's a little slow at the beginning, but it does it it is a, it is very interesting. It's a very powerful yeah. look at you know it's kind of a snapshot in time. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Yes, I just copied the link. If you hold your finger over it, the copy little thing comes up. And you should be, I just po pasted it into a, a little note, you know, so I could have it.
Well, um, so Victor asked if we had any questions for the group and I guess I do and people don't have to respond to this. I, I encourage people to jump in with any comment question they want, but if you want to think about something and perhaps respond to it, I would, I would ask like, what's the relevance today of um, the two different ways that racism in the unions has been tackled in our history. Uh, in the 30s, it was handled by radicals in the unions saying not just that white and black have to unite, but that everyone has to fight racism specifically together because it's the main thing that has held the US working class as a whole back compared to others. So that's one, it was basically led to very large scale white and black unity. And then there was, an, and it was successful, but the, the method in the 60s or 70s was also successful in a different context. And that was one where the CIO had slid back, began to discriminate against its black members, even though forcing them out was, that was no longer a possibility that that time had passed. But, uh, it, that's when the caucuses, the black caucuses like Drum, and this film is is a is a uh, produced by Drum. That's who who's speaking. That's Drum activists that you saw there. Um, and then we still are seeing the reverberations of these caucuses today. Um, they they started the caucus method. They started reintroducing an anti-racist component into union organizing. And that's what's been the key for the, the recent advances in the labor movement, especially teachers unions in the last few years. Caucuses took over. They were caucuses that uh, addressed race and class together. So, you know, I, I think we've had successful models in our past. And I don't know if people think there's, you know, different types of relevance today to either the, you know, the separate caucus organizing method or more the 30s method. I would say recently the Black Lives Matters movement included not just Black lives. Um, and that's what helped get it um, to the place where it got last summer, last spring, last summer, was that we had our Caucasian brothers and sisters, our Hispanics, our Asians, um, straight, gay, didn't matter. We we're all unified and the world took notice um, about what was going on in America. Matter of fact, people started doing the same thing across the world in Europe and Africa. Um, they started uh, uh, protesting, you know, in solidarity and uh, the fires were hot, but, um, you know, we got to keep them soaked up. I'm Hello, saying, girlfriend, how are you? But um, I feel like that was the most recent unifying um, um, instance, racially wise. And, and, and without everybody coming in to join the Black Lives, it wouldn't, it would never have gotten the legitimacy that it got. And that's the problem. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just had a comment too um, about the racism uh, within the unions, you know, that still exists. 
you know, because right, right now I serve as the vice president for the Western Region African-American Committee for SEIU um, International. And that's what we've been focused on about, you know, the, um, how you say it, the um, leadership doesn't reflect the membership. And, um, and that's true. I mean, you know, they're slowly coming around, you know, you, you see, you know, some black faces uh, showing up in um, higher, uh, I guess you could say higher uh, positions. Um, you know, we got our first black uh, vice president. And how long has been, you know, since it just, it's just, SEIB has been around a long time. And I think this just happened like in the last 10 years, maybe, or that we've got a, the first black vice president. I mean, it's still there. And that's what we work, we're working uh, towards to try to uh, make sure that we're represented everywhere. You know, we're more than just the, uh, the people that go and, you know, because when they need us to show up, we out there. We out there with the signs, we pre we walking, we uh, doing whatever it is, you know, to, to, to be unified. But we want to be more than just that. You know, we want to be able to uh, lead, you know, and be in a position to to lead so that um, all races uh, are recognized. Because um, even right now in our local, I mean, you know, it took forever for us to get Black employees in there. And when we did get one, you know, it was just one. And, you know, finally we have three, so that's, a, you know, we, we're coming around, around, but for many years, there were no Black employees at our, our own local. So, you know, I'm just saying that it's still there. It's just we're, you know, it's a little better, but it's still there. That's all I have to say. I would like to comment and amen some of the things that Drusilla said. You know, I've been a union member since since day one because my sis, my older sister, who worked for AT and T for years, uh, was a union member. And then once I got started working for the county, and the county was my first place that where. I could join um, a union. So I came in and jumped feet first. And I was never stopped from joining any of the committees. And shortly after I joined the AAAC, I, you know, I was made the president. But like Drusilla said, even within our union, there was always issues with putting putting forth the the black agenda. I don't yeah. want to get into the, I I don't want to get into the weeds, but I will say, the same time that Fight for Fifteen was going on, the whole Black Lives Matter was was just getting off the ground. 
And when the one convention that she was talking about, the AFRAM, which is the International's um, African-American Caucus, Mary Kay Henry, SEIU's international president, said that every local was supposed to go back and make sure that we did that. And our president ignored that. Yep. He kept pushing the fight for 15. He says, well, Iris, the fight for 15 is, is, is helping black workers. I said, not as much and it is helping Hispanic workers because there's more Hispanic workers in uh, fast food than there are African-American. And then when we all went to the international convention in Detroit, you could have blew me and Drusilla over with the feather. I have never seen so many black people in right? one place. <laughs> Right. And all my life. And then the light bulb came on. Now I understand why Mary Kay Henry was saying the, the things that she did. Not that I don't believe that she believes it, but she is smart enough to know that if the majority of her members are African-American, of course, she's going to be pushing those agendas. But like Drusilla was saying, the, the leadership didn't reflect the membership until Jerry Hudson was elected as a VP. And then he'll become Treasury Secretary. And I thought this year, this past election, that Mary Kay was going to stepped to the side and we were all hoping and praying that Jerry would run for president of SEIU, but Mary Kay decided to run again <laughs> and she, and she won. And, and that was one thing in AFRAM that all the conventions that, that I went to was that everybody kept saying the leadership doesn't represent doesn't represent the the membership and and it could be a, some divide and conquer it could be having presidents of the locals throughout the country that just don't believe that we count. You know, cause I, I, yeah. It's, it's, it's a struggle, especially when you get up in those leadership positions and you really, I mean, you really see it. But then what do you do? You try to galvanize your team, just like at AAAC, Avery comes and thank you, brother Avery. I'm, I am going to call you my brother. That's right. But it is a struggle to get Black people to show up and do something. Because yes. we have members that the only time I see them is when it gets close to June and when we do our Juneteenth celebration. 
because they know all the politicians are going to roll through. We may get some local coverage. And, and it's not about the work that we need to do year round. It's just like Drusilla said, they just want to be there for the show. And, and it's kind of disheartening. And, and again, we're trying to reinvent ourselves, trying to get the younger people, you know, more involved. But it's, it's just a struggle because everybody's attention is, is pulled so many different ways. And I understand that. But we're the only union that gets to hire their bosses. <laughs> and we have to constantly remind people. And this past election really showed it how now we have a democratic majority and already from the first meeting on, you see the change that they are making in this county to make it a more better place, not just for the rich people, but for everybody. And, and I'm, I'm encouraged about that, but I'm hoping that, that it keeps going. Um, one last thing I want to say, and then I'm going to get off because <laughs> I can talk if you let me, um, is that we just really need to encourage each other because that divide and conquer is alive and kicking. And I really believe that the Black Lives Matter um, thing really kicked off is because you saw it in living color on television. All right. the stuff that we talked about for years that we learned about from our, from our ancestors. You know, you heard them stories about, you know, cousin so-and-so can only creep into town to see the relatives because something happened when he was a teenager and he had to leave town. My old, 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 great, great, great uncle Titus who lived to be over a hundred and something. Anytime we talk about, oh, we don't wanna go to school. He would take off his shirt and show where he got whipped. He said, if I can endure this, you can endure. <laughs> you can endure going into class, you know? So, well, that's all I got to say. I'm just saying that we really need to support each other. We really need to, because like, like Avery and Nicole was saying earlier, when we all get together and fight, we win. Thank you for listening. Uh, so can I say something real quick? I, I ain't going to be long. I just wanted to add to what Iris was saying about, um, you know, with the new board coming on, um, we have uh, the majority. But there's still, there is still struggle there because I'm going to tell you what happens. Um, I spoke at the Board of Supervisors last Tuesday about that. I did a public comment, you know, because it was nothing on the agenda, you know, uh, when the racism, uh, when they did the press conference for the the uh, racism, uh, the racism uh, that they were trying to uh, get approved through the board. You know, we were we were contacted by our union that they needed someone to go and stand with them through the press conference. 
We didn't know anything that was going on. They just wanted a black person there. And, you know, I, I spoke up and I said, no, no, you know, nobody go. You know, and so I spoke about it at the Board of Supervisors last week. And I said, you know what, instead of asking us to come stand by you, we want to stand with you. We don't want to be just that token black person that you need when you're talking about racism. I want to know what's going on. Our AAAC, we, we, before COVID, we used to do a lot of stuff out in the community, serving the homeless and, and uh, working, uh, ushering, just donating our time. You know, we were out there. We were doing the work. So to not be recognized enough to even give us credit, you know, to listen to what any ideas that we say or have. And I, even right now, they created the Leon Williams uh, group and they had Iris go to the uh, meeting. When she got there, she didn't get to be in it. So nobody, they don't take us serious. And that's what, you know, we continue to fight. We're not going anywhere, no matter what you do. We're going to be here and we're going to continue to fight. That's all I have to say. Oh, Drew, I'm going to tr try to show up to those uh, meetings because I don't think there, it's a closed meeting, the Human Rights, uh, the Human Rights Board. But okay, she's sure. right. When I got there, yeah, when I got there, there were other nationalities that hadn't even been tapped. And they were coming in talking about how come I'm hearing this at the last minute? How you know? So I kind of knew that I wasn't going to be asked to to be put on there. But I did say, well, how big or how small can this board be? And of course, the board that was there at the time put all these limitations on there. So Drew, maybe me and you need to go and talk to Nathan to see if they can bring it back up and, and expand that human rights, that human rights commission to see if we can add more, more bodies. Okay, we could do that. Yeah. And let's not forget in general, this is Black History Month. So we have a rich history. Um, over and beyond just the labor movement. So we wanna honor, you know, as well, those who came before us who put their bodies on the line, put their, you know, they worked in houses and, and raised other people's children and Absolutely. didn't have time to raise their own, you know, couldn't cook for their own because they had to cook for someone else so they can come home and have a roof over their head. You know, I know my mother, my grandmother did that. And, um, you know, those who, made it possible for Drew, for you, Iris, and for me, myself, to even be county workers um, and to have this voice, you know, I just kind of want to honor them tonight as well. And that's what we talked about at the last AAAC meeting, that we wanted to go to these Board of Supervisors meeting this month and reflect on Black history. And that was just my, I was the only one that spoke on it. But, you know, from now on, you know, I'm just going to, Ask to speak public comment, and and I'm going to talk about the issues that we have as uh as black employees with the county because it's for some reason it's not being heard at, at least not for me that's that's what I think but okay I'm done I talked too much okay one last thing <laughs> I did ask the ace the African 
uh, what is it? That's sad because I'm a member. <laughs> and when they redid it, I was like one of the people that helped the jump extra. Yeah, for yep. the county employees. I asked their president to join us at the next board meeting because they said that racism is a, you know, a public health crisis. But then we crickets, we haven't heard what they're doing, if they're starting some type of commission, is the Human Rights Commission gonna be the one that looks at all of this or what? And basically we're gonna go and say, okay, what's next? So I, I called the president, well, I reached out to her and I asked her, I said, would you guys be willing to have your people come and talk, um, you know, with us. You know, it's not that we're going to beat them over the head. We're just going to have our say about our experiences about working as African-Americans and working for the county and what, what their plans are gonna do. We went from a few, just a few years ago for being just 8% of the employees working for the county, now we're down to 4%. At the last meeting, a, a member brought that to our attention because she works in an office that tabulates all this stuff. So our numbers are shrinking. Absolutely. So, I'm the only black female in my department. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in in your department. Wow. Yeah. Food services. I'm the only black senior cook female. There's a there's about four or five male blacks. But um, I just feel like they don't they don't put their fillers out to replenish because I'm, I'm leaving myself in three years. I mean, it's going to be an extinct position. I don't understand. I, 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 under, I don't understand the system sometimes. I don't. You know, Robin, can we can we reach out to you to see if you want to join us next Tuesday or just start coming to the AAAC meetings? Yeah, of course. Uh, Chris Martinez had told me about it, but she never pursued further, and I just okay. Really I, I I will yeah, I will group. send something to Chris. Our, our meeting is is tomorrow. I know it's sudden. Our meeting is tomorrow, and it is via Zoom. And I try not to hold people long, mm -hmm. but, but you know, you can pop in and stay for as long as you like, because we're going to mostly be talking about what we're going to be, what we're going to be doing for uh, the board of soup, the board of soups uh, meeting. Mm -hmm. And we would love to have you. I appreciate it. Okay. There was one more thing I was going to say, but. Girl, it's just, look, we didn't took over the meeting. I know. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. enough. I know, right? <laughs> like I said, don't get me started. Don't get me started. Let me hush up. I don't think I'm out of place for speaking for all of us. I don't think we can ever get enough of uh, you, Iris, and, and Gisela Robin, too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate hearing your, your experiences.
Uh, yeah, Bob, looks like you had your hand up. Go for it. Go yeah, for it. let me take it down now so that it doesn't stay up forever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, thanks, everybody. I uh, appreciate all the comments I've heard tonight, um, and especially and certainly the uh, excellent presentations by Avery and Nicole that really laid out, uh, you know, a long history in a pretty short amount of time and gave us a good picture. Um, you know, I mean, just thinking on a lot, I, my thoughts are all over the place, but thinking on a lot of the stuff folks have been saying, you know, unions have always been at their best when they have been, um, they, when they have been, when there's been a focus on multiracial organizing, when there's been a focus on rank and file organizing, um, when the, you know, when they've broken down these barriers that, that kind of have held back labors for so long. And I, I think um, when we talk about um, where we're at now, um, we have to realize that really that, you know, that, that last wave of the 60s and 70s, that was, that was really the last gasp of the labor movement where we really saw these incredible struggles coming out of labor um, that, um, that that really um, you know you know made a difference, and I think I, I, you know we've seen a ton of promising stuff within labor in the last decade, you know, uh, and that's great, and we should we should uh, point to those things, but um, I think we also have to just look at historically. I mean, what's happened since the '70s has been an, just an absolute decimation of labor, right? And and labor in that context of being very much uh, weakened. Uh, and this goes back to also their own role in McCarthyism and, and weeding out the radicals, the socialists, the communists, and that, you know, the, in the 50s, but it also includes uh, those radicals and revolutionaries in the 60s, like, like the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement that Nicole talked about. Um, weeding those elements out of labor has extraordinarily weakened labor and labor in its weakened state has essentially turned to where most of much of its organizing is about spending money on election campaigns right and often national campaigns and things like that um people can argue that they're you know certain elements certain campaigns are going to be useful to spend money on but um my argument is those things are part of the reason that you don't have a ton of uh, union participation from members and things like that. People don't get excited about these things as much, you know, putting money into politicians rather than organizing. I, I think, uh, again, I think union organizing has been at its best when it's made connections to the communities that they serve, that those members are a part of, that they build social justice struggles and see them as connected like, you know, Robin talked about this, the current Black Lives Matter movement, which I think has had an impact on labor in many cases where labor is, is you know, th there's a bit of a reckoning there that labor has to be anti-racist, not just not racist, right? Or, and, and of course, as Drusilla pointed out, or at worst, racist, right? As, you know, racism does exist in labor, of course, as it doesn't, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, all of society. Um, and to varying extents, but you know, uh, if if labor is not actively anti-racist and actually um, involved in struggles for racial justice, for social justice, then you know it doesn't inspire you know 
you know, kind of membership organization where the members themselves become more and more involved. If we had much, much more membership involvement and organizing and stuff like that, unions would be a lot more powerful than they are. But unions have been relegated to this kind of like uh, special interest group that funds election campaigns and things like that. And of course, I'm generalizing here. Obviously, SEIU and many other unions have been involved in important social justice uh, fights. And that's important. Um, and I don't mean to diminish that in any way, but just to say this has been the trajectory of labor in general. So even the best unions right now are not um, doing nearly what they were doing in their best periods, right? In those periods, the best period being the 30s in terms of winning the most gains, but also those um, kind of revolutionary periods of the, of the 60s. So I just think um, we need to build on what we've seen, you know, like, like coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement, there have been shifts, there have been discussions happening that can't just be left at discussions, but have to transform the way labor operates uh, for the better. And I think um, let's try to, we should try to be hopeful about um, what we have seen, the kind of multiracial movement that black, the, the new black freedom struggle has inspired. Um, I think that's heartening and something we should, um, we should harness and, uh, and, and definitely make uh, an integral part to any of the fights that we um, are in within our own uh, labor organizations and within the labor movement as a whole. That Thanks, is Paul. excellent, yes. Thank you. So listening to Bob and everybody else, I was trying to think more about what this means for us here and now. And um, somebody was mentioning uh, that the Board of Supervisors recently declared that racism is a public health emergency. Um, and, you know, as a county worker, I'm seeing a lot of things that the county is doing, opening up these listening meetings uh, to where black county workers discuss their experiences. And it's these things are welcome and a step forward, but they always strike me, frankly, as extremely hypocritical. It because, does, yes, yes. <laughs> and the, the reason I say that is that this is a county that hoards $2 billion. And the, the historic impact on communities of color, black communities, also brown communities in San Diego, is that they could not buy housing in the majority of the county. So they did not gain the housing equity, the generational and familial wealth uh, because of, you know, and originally that was just, you literally, if you were a person of color, you could not live north of the 94. I'm talking World War II, post-World War II era, uh, and then redlining and other practices made it virtually impossible. So you've got a county which has a massive history of systematic impoverishment of communities of color, and that same county sits on $2 billion surpluses. How are you going to turn that around? You can't turn that around without resources, without money, without stop stopping the hoarding of money to keep it sitting in a bank account instead of to fund social needs and services and uplift and what should be our local version of reparations 
to turn around uh, that type of history. So I think that's why they can make bold statements like racism is a public health crisis. And then we hear the crickets because to really act on those words, that would be bold action. And we have Democrats uh, as a majority on the board now, but we're not talking Bernie Sanders here, okay? We're talking about conservative or centrist Democrats. We finally have one who's not a white person. As far as I know, that's the, I don't know if we've had a person of color on the board at all in our history, but we still haven't had a black person on uh, the County Board of Supervisors. So I think that with the consciousness that has been raised- Avery, yes, yes, we did. Leon Williams was on the oh, board. Right. And Thank when you. he was there, there were a lot of African-Americans in, in the upper echelons. Uh, D. Meyer's uh, father was the head of probation for years. Uh, Cecil Stepp. I mean, you know, it was a lot of people doing a lot of good. And when he left that human rights commission that he founded and started and was really working all into the communities, as soon as he left office, they defunded and, and shut down that, that commission. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I forgot about Leon Williams. It's been such a long time. I just thought of the of the board as just having been there forever with those five who are finally now walking out, you know, exit stage left. But thank you for pointing that out. Um, so I just think with the consciousness that's been raised in the last year, with these types of statements that the board is now making, that's an opening for us to push and say, live up to that statement and to put forward our proposals for how to really live up to it and for it not to be empty hip, hypocritical things uh, or, or things that just say, you know, the problem is only like county workers behavior. Uh, you know, yeah, county workers have issues with racism, but the board itself, they're the ones that hold the massive resources. So you have to, you can't leave one of those things out, especially the, the biggest one that can make the biggest difference. So, We've got contract negotiations coming up and we are, I think, going to follow the precedent that we've begun to set of having community supported demands, demands for social justice in the county as a whole. And this understanding should shape what we're demanding and bringing forward in our contract negotiations. We have elections for a new union president coming up. And the, the election for our new president, our new uh, executive board, that these things in terms of what kind of demands we're gonna to create to the county as a whole, but also what kind of things we need to do as a union internally and push for within SEIU as a whole. I think all those things should be brought into um, both those campaigns, the, the campaign for union leadership and the campaign for a new county contract.